to the Victorian Gasland podcast, shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 2, George 3 is not a sequel. Last time I talked about one of the iconic symbols of the 19th century, the humble gas lamp. And while we have some time before we get to Her Majesty Queen Victoria, it's still 1800 here at the podcast. And at this time, in this place, the King of Great Britain and King of Ireland is George III. Now, George William Frederick of the House of Hanover was born on the 4th of June in 1738. And he'll be mentioned in a number of podcasts, so this is more of an overview of the monarch than getting to know every other little detail. Just gives you some background to the character that's going to pop up in future episodes. George III was of the Hanoverian House of Kings, but was actually the first of the line that was born in Great Britain. The House of Hanover was a royal house that ruled over the, surprise, Hanover region of Lower Saxony in Germany. And in the early 1700s, Anne from the House of Stuart had been queen. Now, she had been married to Prince George of Denmark. Now, he's a George we don't need to worry about because while they were apparently happily married, he died before she did. So in terms of who's in charge in Great Britain, he doesn't really come into it. Now, Queen Anne was unfortunately a woman of ill health throughout her life. That sounds bad. And then I read that she tragically endured 17, yes, 17 pregnancies in her life. You heard me? Uh, ouch. Uh, the poor Queen unfortunately had 12 that were still born or she miscarried, four infant deaths, and only one child, William, survived to the age of 11 before succumbing to illness. When she died in 1714, the law at that time excluded Catholics from taking over the English throne, and thus it was Anne's cousin George from the House of Hanover that became George I in 1714. So George I was the first of what became known as the Hanoverians, and Queen Victoria was the last of them, which is why I'm sort of briefly covering them, even though it's outside my 1800 starting point. Now, a bit, a bit of trivia, because I love my trivia. He was on his way from Great Britain to visit Hanover when he died of a stroke in 1727, and he was actually the last British monarch to be buried outside the United Kingdom. And his son became George II, and he was actually the last monarch of Great Britain that was born outside the United Kingdom. Now, George II then went on, had his own son, Frederick, but Frederick died before inheriting the throne. And so it was actually Frederick's son, George, who then becomes the George III in 1760 at the young age of 22. So it was George III that was king come January 1st, 1800, where our podcast begins as Big Ben chimed in the new century. Now, George III was officially known as King of Great Britain and King of Ireland until January 1st, 1801. Then Parliament passed what is known as the Acts of Union in 1800 and became the first British monarch to be called King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Eh, I'm sure that looked good on his resume. But there was also a very subtle change in the title and that meant a great deal. Because notice in the second title that Ireland is added with just an and. George is not titled separately as King of Ireland. This unity might seem a little odd given the traditional, well, let's call it antagonism, between the Irish and the British, but each side had their motivations for this. 
the British wanted to ensure that the predominantly Catholic Ireland didn't side with the Catholic French, and the Irish were actually hoping for emancipation. Emancipation, you ask? Well, because only those of the Anglican faith could be members of Parliament in Parliament, and that was meant to represent the populace. Also, Catholic Irish were restricted from voting for said Anglican MPs unless they owned or rented property worth £2 a year. So from the Irish perspective, the people there hoped that with this change in unity, that they'd actually establish themselves with a political voice. Now, with this new title, George III continued on with his reign, and his wife was Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. I think I got that right. Now, they were married back in 1761, so only just after he took the throne, and they only met for the first time on their wedding day. So go royal weddings. They had 15 children, nine sons and six daughters. So I guess that worked out well for them, although I have to give some sympathy there to Queen Charlotte as well. And in all defiance of centuries of history, George III was well known for being completely monogamous. And even when his children acted, shall we say, inappropriately, he was known to be disappointed in their behaviour. Also, in 1762, George had purchased Buckingham House. That's the site of the present-day Buckingham Palace. Now, moving back into the 1800s, so George III is King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and in May of 1800, there was two men who attempted to assassinate him. James Hadfield and his accomplice, Bannister Trulock, there's a cool name, had decided that to bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ would occur if Hadfield was actually executed by the British government. Now, that logic sounds like that of a man who's taken too many blows to the head, and in Hadfield's case, that may have actually been the reason. Because six years earlier, Hadfield had been in a battle where he had sustained eight separate blows with a sabre to his head. I don't even know how that happens, but anyway. So, figuring that the best crime to commit was regicide, Hadfield went to the Royal Theatre in Drury Lane and during the playing of the National Anthem while the King was standing, Hadfield shot him. He missed but was arrested and stood guilty of high treason. Oh, and it's only called high treason when it's a betrayal against royalty. Otherwise, it's just your normal everyday treason. So, there you know the difference. Hadfield's barrister was a man by the name of Thomas Erskine, probably the leading man in his field at that time. Now, with the possibility of being hung, drawn and quartered, yes, that penalty was actually still on the books at that time, Hadfield's lawyer argued that he was completely delusional. No surprise there. But they also had two surgeons and a physician testify that the previous head injuries had created these delusions. The judge agreed and Hadfield was committed to Bethlehem Royal Hospital, also known as Bedlam, for the rest of his life. And he was actually in there in 1841 when he died of tuberculosis. Bannister was also committed to the hospital, and as far as I can find out, he died there as well, but I haven't been able to see anything else on him. Now, with the Treaty of Amiens being signed in 1802, Europe got at least one year of peace before Napoleon started making a lot of political noise, and to the English it seemed a very real threat that the first consul and later emperor of France would be invading their country. But 
thanks to Horatio Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, that evasion was no longer going to be an issue. Now, we also know throughout his life that George was plagued by health problems. In the 1780s, his health began deteriorating. While the specifics of what caused his illness remain unknown, he was subject to acute mania. It has been suggested that the king suffered from a genetic disorder called porphyria, although this is by no means certain. A sample of his hair was tested in 2005 and found to contain high levels of arsenic. Why that may have been there is unknown, but the product was used in medicines and cosmetics at the time, as well as in paint colouring. So it could have been poisoned by the decor, for all we know. Whatever the malady was in 1788, it almost saw the creation of a regency by the then Prince of Wales, but George recovered and assumed his duties again. And it was actually this period of his illness that was covered in the film The Madness of King George. That was released in 1994, starred Nigel Hawthorne and Helen Mirren. It's actually a really interesting film, and one that saw Nigel receiving his only Oscar nomination. But in the film, the ending credits refer to the porphyria as being the cause of his symptoms. Uh, the film also makes use of the fact that at that time his urine was blue, and then when he recovered, it wasn't. However, some medicines at that time could have that effect on you. So most today believe that he was experiencing some sort of psychiatric illness rather than an ailment with a purely physical cause to it. Uh, the movie is based on a play by Alan Bennett that was called The Madness of King George III. An urban legend formed that the title was changed for the cinema to prevent non-British audiences from mistaking that it was a sequel to two other movies about the madness of King George. And that's where I get the title of this episode from. The King's health was always troubled, and by 1810, when he was at his most popular, he was already virtually blind with cataracts and suffering from severe rheumatism. 1810 was not a good year for King George. Although popular among the public, in April he sadly lost his youngest and also favourite daughter to tuberculosis. Amelia had been their 15th child and was the first daughter of George and Charlotte to die. The King and Queen were devastated and at the time the princess's nurse reported that the scenes of distress and crying every day were, quote, melancholy beyond description, end quote. George was really struggling with his own health at this point, physical and mental. And it was in 1811 that both Houses of Parliament signed what became the Regency Act of 1811. This meant that from 1811 onwards, the duties of King George III were assumed by his son George, the man who was next in line for the throne anyway. So it's not like we're going all Shakespeare and trying to assume a throne that wasn't going to be theirs soon anyway. King George accepted this and moved to live in seclusion at Windsor Castle. But if we felt sadness for him, unfortunately there was nothing good to come. He developed dementia and also became completely blind and increasingly deaf. In 1814, when his traditional family home of Hanover became a kingdom, he was actually incapable of understanding that he was now also the King of Hanover. 
and in probably the nadir of his illness, he didn't understand or even know of his wife's death in 1818. He and Queen Charlotte had been married for 57 years. At Christmas in 1819, he reportedly spoke nonsense for 58 hours straight. Losing his ability to walk, in January of 1820, his fourth son, the Duke of Kent, died of pneumonia. Six days later, George, third of that name, died. George had lived for 81 years and 239 days. Succeeded as King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland by his son, George IV, he had reigned for 59 years and 96 days. Both his life and his reign were longer than any of his predecessors and also of any of the kings that came after him. Only Victoria herself and Queen Elizabeth II have since lived and reigned longer. His legacy has been spoken of in conflicting ways, admired for his conservative spending, especially compared to what his son would later spend, he was also mocked for his interest in mundane matters such as agricultural programs rather than politics. Yet it was his encouragement and focus on growth in these rural industries that created a workforce that would power the industrial revolution that he was to experience through his reign. He lost the American colonies because of his stubborn insistence that he should be able to tax them but I think the best way to describe his legacy was said by John Cameron in his 2004 biography of the king. Quote, The monarchy continued to lose its political power and grew as the embodiment of national morality. End quote. So he might not have had the power he began with, but he did lead by example. He became a better person and he inspired his nation to do the same seems like an achievement we could all aspire to i think so here endeth the episode you can find me at victoriangaslamp.com my contact details are on there too so email us if you like uh, you can follow me on twitter that would be great at VicGaslamp, and more importantly on instagram where i post history facts and trivia as well and i'm at victorian gaslamp there the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for it, and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. 